Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. I was reading a little bit the other day about J.R.R. Tolkien, because I'm a cool, cool guy. And it mentioned that at one point during World War I, he contracted trench fever, which my stupid brain briefly interpreted as, wow, Tolkien was just wild about trenches. Couldn't get enough of them. And it struck me how odd a suffix that is to add to something that people are enthusiastic about. I mean, your various manias make a lot more sense, be they Beatles or Hulka. Because, you know, a mania is a disorder that's marked by excitement and overactivity. But fevers, you mostly just need to stay in bed until they go away, right? So I guess that raises the question, in the 70s and early 80s, were people just that bad at boogieing and Pac-Man? And Saturday nights? I guess I like to stay in bed until Saturday night goes away. Okay, never mind. I guess the expression makes sense after all. Anyway, if you've got Defenders Typhoid like I do, then you're probably pretty excited for us to get on with this show. So without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme was submitted by Thomas Furchalk. Merman likes river lilies, fronds, and service canadensis. Crap, I've mixed Hub's podcasts up. Please save me with a synopsis. Thanks, Thomas. Thomas was, of course, referring to Garden Plots with Skeletor, the gardening advice podcast hosted by Skeletor that I started writing for earlier this year. You guys should check it out. I also do the voice of Merman on it. Defenders, number 84, June 1980. Battle Royal. Written by Ed Hannigan, drawn by Don Perlin, inked by Tex Blaisdell, lettered by Diane Albers, Colored by George Rousos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, The Submariner, Valkyrie, Hellcat, Clea, Nighthawk, kinda but not really, and Black Panther, previously in The Defenders. Doctor Strange got his fellow defenders, Namor and the Hulk, embroiled in a long convoluted storyline in which they battled an unnameable underpants monster in the high fantasy nonsense realm of Tunnel World. It was a whole thing. The saga concluded with Steve interspacing his way into the Hulk's brain and sorcerously soldering off a segment of the Jade Giant's memory. This mystical makeshift neurosurgery kept the Hulk from turning evil by staving off the influence of the underpants monster, which had been manipulating his actions. As a side benefit, Steve's magical mental meddling also probably saved the universe from destruction and really ruined an evil bird-headed jerk's day. Hooray! 
Speaking of jerks with bird motifs, back on Earth, affluent avian aficionado Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, was being investigated by the government for gross financial malfeasance, and was served with a court order that barred him from dressing up in his fancy bird suit for the duration of the investigation. Naturally, Kyle ignored this order, and was taken into custody for the better part of an hour. Upon his release, he was warned by his lawyers that he'd better not do it again. Or else. Gadzooks! What dire consequences will Kyle face should he violate his court order a second time? How will Namor relax after helping save the universe? And will we ever have to return to the high-fantasy, thinly-veiled libertarian diatribe bullshit that was Tunnel World? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Given the level of repercussions he's had to face in the past, I would suspect that Kyle would find himself staring down the barrel of a very strongly worded letter. By nearly starting World War III, and no. Hooray! When Namor returns to Atlantis, his subjects throw a big celebration to honor the fact that he and his pals probably saved the galaxy or something. Despite the lavish feast that is being held purportedly for his benefit, the crown prince of Abslantis seems pretty glum. Which isn't too much of a surprise. I mean, brooding darkly is what Namor does best. Well, that and flying into a rage. Oh, and getting amnesia, he's really good at that too. And declaring war on the surface world, although that often falls under the larger umbrella of flying into a rage. He's got a pretty diverse skill set. Anyway, Steve asks the Marine Monarch what he's brooding about this time, and it turns out that Namor is worried about the Hulk. It seems that Steve's impromptu mystical brain surgery may have had a few side effects, and now the Hulk won't wake up. Bummer. Steve's like, Oh yes, that. Oh, I'm all torn up about it as well, but the Hulk's pretty tough. I'm sure he'll be fine. Unless he isn't. Anyway, I'm going home. I'll come back and pick up the Hulk in a few days. Unless, of course, he dies, which would be very sad, but would also save me a trip. Bye! And with that, Steve begins his journey back to the Sanctum Sanctimonious for some well-earned rest. Meanwhile, on a small, uninhabited island off the west coast of the fictional African nation of Wakanda, a high-tech amphibious vehicle pulls up on the rocky shore. Some emissaries from the Atlantean military have arranged for a meeting with a smuggler named Wazira, who has offered to sell them some stolen Wakandan technology. Wazira greets his prospective clients and is like, Hey guys, you know how the king of this country is the Black Panther, the badass superhero who likes to dress up like a kitty cat and beat up bad guys like me? Well... Turns out he's onto my shenanigans, so if we could hurry this up just a little bit, and I could possibly get some extra hazard pay for this shipment, that'd be just great. The Atlanteans are like, hazard pay? Are you serious? We're in the Atlantean military. We have one of those, it's been X many days since someone has attempted a coup signs, and there isn't even a slot for double digits on that thing. Our boss makes us invade New York City, a place where we can't breathe, mind you, so often that I have strong opinions on which Ray's Pizza is the real one. And you think you're getting hazard po- OOF! That last bit is because Black Panther just jumped out of the bushes and started kicking the shit out of both Wazira's men and the Atlanteans. 
Hooray! King T'Challa makes quick work of the smugglers, but several of the Atlanteans make it back to their vessel. Fortunately, the now-unconscious Wazira left a perfectly good flying submarine car just lying around, so the superheroic sovereign commandeers it and pursues his fleeing aquatic adversaries. The Wakandan commandos who had accompanied Black Panther on his mission attempt to caution their king against going off on his own, but the regal crime fighter remains resolute in his insistence on tracking down those who would misuse Wakandan technology. He tracks his quarry and is surprised to see the vehicle approaching the main fleet of the Atlantean Navy. He's even more surprised when big old robot arms shoot out of the Navy's flagship and capture his flying submarine car. Whoops! Back in Atlantis, Namor's chief advisor, Lord Vashti, informs his king that some of the generals have been illegally buying weapons and are being chased down by an unknown vehicle. Namor is like, What? Who told those assholes it was okay to make shady deals like that? Lord Vashti is like, Well, remember how before you left to go beat up a magic underpants monster, you told the military that they could do whatever they wanted while you were gone as long as they thought it was good for Atlantis? Namor is like, Clearly I don't. Vashti is like, Well, you did. So, they did. And it turns out that restraint and good judgment aren't exactly traits that Atlantean military officers are famous for. Yeah, good point, Vashti. Namor demands that the captured vehicle be brought directly to him, that he might personally question whoever it is that has invaded his realm. As Namor and Vashti discuss this matter, Bruce Banner is starting to wake up from his magical lobotomy-induced snooze. The Atlantean physicians who are attending him are like, you just had a tiny sorcerer zap magic bolts around inside your brain. You should probably go back to sleep. But Bruce is like, Aw, I don't want to go back to sleep. Sometimes going to sleep makes me turn into the Hulk. I think that might have just been a Silver Age thing, but I can't remember for sure, and I'd really rather not risk it. The doctors are like, Yeah, well... And then they stick him with a syringe full of sedatives that conks him right out. Meanwhile, back in New York, a tired Doctor Strange finally arrives back at the Sanctum. Unlike Bruce Banner, Steve would like nothing more than the opportunity to take a little nap. But he doesn't get that opportunity, because Clea is entertaining some familiar guests. It's Val and Patsy! Hey guys! Patsy congratulates Steve on defeating the Underpants monster, and is like, Hey, we're gonna reform the Defenders. Wanna join? Steve is like, Oh, that's right. I had totally forgotten that I quit the Defenders right after I got possessed by that magic ruby that made me quote Rush lyrics. Yeah, you and me both, Steve. Back in Atlantis, Namor puts on his kingliest cape and awaits the arrival of the flying submarine car. When his guards bring it to him and its door slowly opens, the abdominally adroit Atlantean is shocked to find himself greeted by a fellow monarch. He's like, Damn, T'Challa, my generals fucked up big time, huh? They definitely shouldn't have bought weapons that were stolen from Wakanda. But despite that, I can't let you take any of my subjects captive. Send them back to me so that I can throw them in an underwater dungeon or something. Also, I'm not exactly stoked that you just snuck into my kingdom. Black Panther is like, Sorry, Namor, but your generals did some crimes in Wakanda, and we take our rules about proprietary technology very seriously. Your soggy bottom boys are going to have to stay in my prison for now. They need to be tried in a Wakandan court.
Namor reacts to these words with a ferocious anger that he generally reserves for elevators and revolving doors. He's like, Fuck you, Black Panther! Then he takes off his diplomatic cape so Black Panther can tell he means business. Black Panther is like, Oh shit! He took off his diplomatic cape! He must mean business! I'm out of here! And with that, he tosses an electrified high-tech net at Namor and hightails it out of there. The fleeing head of state stealthily makes his way through the corridors of the royal palace, occasionally stopping to beat up some royal guards and bust open the water-filled helmets they have to wear in the parts of the building that Namor keeps filled with air. Eventually, he stumbles across a room where Bruce Banner is taking a drug-induced nap. He's like, Hey, I recognize this guy. He's that guy that turns into the Hulk. Namor must have taken him prisoner. Guess I'd better rescue him. Hey, buddy, wake up! When gently shaking the sleeping physicist does not rouse him from his slumber, T'Challa goes for plan B, slapping the shit out of Banner. The good news is that this wakes up Bruce Banner. The bad news is, being slapped by a dude wearing heavily armored gloves pisses Bruce off enough that he turns into the Hulk. The worst news is that the Hulk thinks he's being held prisoner and is super pissed off about it. Uh-oh. The Bounding Behemoth does what he does best. Eat beans? No, the other thing he does best. Smash. Although I guess both of those activities can result in explosions of one kind or another. Anyway, the enraged Emerald Avenger starts destroying everything in his path. The commotion soon attracts Namor's attention. He busts into the room and is like, Fucking seriously, T'Challa? You woke up the Hulk? Dick move! Namor tries to get his big green buddy to calm down, but in case you haven't noticed, diplomacy isn't exactly Namor's strong suit. The Hulk's rampage continues unabated until eventually he breaks through the metal shell of the building and all three heroes are jettisoned into the ocean. Oops. Fortunately, while he had been running through the palace, Black Panther stopped to pop a fancy science device that would allow him to breathe underwater into his mouth, so he doesn't drown. But he does get knocked out. Some Wakandan submarines who had been monitoring their monarch's position swoop in and rescue the soggy sovereign. Around the world, news agencies begin to report that diplomatic relations have broken down between Atlantis and Wakanda, and that war is not only probable, but perhaps inevitable. From inside his lawyer's office, Kyle Richmond laments that he's unable to slap on his bird suit and try to patch things up between the two world leaders. It's a testament to the professionalism of the lawyer that he manages to not laugh out loud. Namor is concerned that the Hulk might drown, and drags the Green Goliath back to Atlantis. The Hulk, however, is far from grateful for this rescue. Fed up with his treatment, the gamma-radiated Gargantua leaps from the undersea city, launching himself high into the air, vowing never to return. When Wakandan defense forces see that an object was just launched from Atlantis at near-unfathomable speed, they leap both into action and to incorrect conclusions. Tensions between the two fictional nations had already been ramped up to 11, so when they see what they assume can only be a missile being launched from the fabled undersea kingdom, the Wakandan army figures they're probably under attack and retaliate in kind. They launch a nuclear missile at their perceived attacker. Oh shit! Black Panther wakes up aboard a Wakandan submarine a few seconds after the nukes have been launched, and is like, Hey, what did I miss? His general is like, Oh, not much. 
We saw something shoot out of Atlantis a minute or so ago, and figured you would probably want to launch a nuclear assault on them, so we went ahead and did that for you. You're welcome. Black Panther is like, Um, not that I want to discourage initiative, but in the future, please don't declare war on anyone while I'm asleep. Now, put in a FaceTime call to Atlantis, please. I probably ought to talk to Namor. When he gets the Atlantean ruler on the video phone, the Submariner isn't exactly stoked to see his recent regal sparring partner. When T'Challa explains the reason for his call, Namor is even less stoked. Getting blown up by atomic weapons is perhaps the only thing the six-pack sporting monarch avoids more strenuously than he does shirts and carbs. Okay, as strenuously. Black Panther gives Namor the exact coordinates of the missiles, and despite his distrust for his counterpart, the Sea King springs into action. Using all his might, he manages to divert the path of the plutonium-powered projectile. Rather than destroying Atlantis, for the sixth or seventh time since the 40s, the missile's journey ends where the international incident began, detonating on the uninhabited rocky island where the smugglers and Atlantean warlords had first arranged their illicit arms deal. Relieved that the immediate crisis has been averted, each superheroic ruler returns to their respective realm and solemnly reflects on the significance of the day's events. The situation may have de-escalated, but the underlying enmity remains. Namor swears that he will not soon forget the animosity he feels Black Panther has earned today. At least, not unless, you know, he gets amnesia again. To be continued. Man, I'm sure glad those guys managed to avoid blowing each other up. I mean, can you imagine a world where Atlantis and Wakanda just didn't exist anymore? That is not a world I want to live in. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going... It's going okay. Good. Glad to hear that. It sounded a little bit qualified there. Oh, I was just just checking in, you know? Just checking in with yourself and being like, yeah, I'm actually doing okay. Yeah. I know that feeling. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm uh having some seasonally anachronistic eggnog in my coffee. Oh. As we record this, it is very early October and on the last day of September, the grocery store decided it was appropriate to start selling me eggnog, and who was I to argue? Wow, that is, that is interesting. I feel like maybe everybody's just really leaning into the fact that, well, you know what? Since calendar time has been completely meaningless all year, let's at least get some good out of that. Mm. Yeah, eggnog is, is really tasty. I do fear it's more so just this creep towards like all of the shopping stuff happening sooner and sooner. Yeah, I can see that being the case, but fuck it. I feel like I am unstuck in time and I want to reap the benefits of it. So I'm going to see if I can maybe scare up some Cadbury cream eggs and uh, a Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner and just really go to town. Do it to it. <laughs> Amen. Speaking of doing it to it, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, I think we ought to. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Man, it was 
pretty exciting from start to finish. I was very happy to see Black Panther. Yeah, me too. He is definitely one of my favorite characters. I feel so bad about whatever happened to his leg and his finger on the cover. (laughs) He looks very injured. He's fine, but the way that it's drawn, one of his fingers appears going totally the wrong way. And then his leg is kind of like twisted behind him at a funny angle. Yeah. And when you see the look on Namor's face, it it seems pretty plausible that like, oh, did Namor just break all his bones? Yeah. Yeah. I was really happy to see Black Panther show up, too. I was a little bit disappointed that the art team changed a little bit right when it did, because we no longer have Joe Sinnott on inks. And he was the inker on the very first appearance of the Black Panther. So I would have liked to have seen him doing it. I think Tex Blaisdell does a, a decent job in the issue, but uh, I don't know. I would have I liked to see uh, Joe Sinnott do some Black Panther in there. Yeah, it makes sense. For me, the part of the lineup I was most concerned about was that apparently Jim Shooter is now Namor. <laughs> yeah, he credits himself or is credited as Imperious Rex, which is, I think, in character for him to wish to be referred to as such. But uh, yeah, I agree. A little bit concerning. Not the only difference in the uh, creative team behind this issue. We also have (laughs) Diane Albers as the letterer. And I think the combination of having her and Tex Blaisdell be inserted into the art team is probably an indicator that this issue was running a little bit behind and it was kind of a all hands on deck situation for finishing it up. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, especially with the lettering, As you said, it is a very exciting issue. There is a lot happening, but there is also a lot of just dense blocks of dialogue in this issue. So it seems like the lettering was probably a pretty hefty chore. Mm -hmm. I also overall enjoyed the issue. I had some problems with the pacing, as I do with a lot of Ed Hannigan's stuff. I think both in terms of the story arc and the specific issue, there is a little bit too much happening in this. I feel like we just wrapped up the Tunnel World arc, thank fucking God. (laughs) (laughs) And I could use more of a reset issue, I feel like, where it's like, oh, and then the team returns and you see everybody settling back to their roles. And instead, it launches into a whole new fairly convoluted storyline immediately. I understand it, but it seems like honestly just a little bit much. And likewise, for the characters, both Strange and Namor are like, fuck, man, I am tired. I just want to go chill. I want to rest. But the only character who gets to rest is the one who doesn't want to, the Hulk. Yeah. He gets slapped awake by the Black Panther. Yeah, that was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you that there is a lot, perhaps too much going on in this issue. But one thing I did enjoy about it was... I felt it did capture pretty well this sort of fog of war idea, where I think my notes were, well, that escalated quickly. (laughs) Mistaking the Hulk for a nuclear missile. Yeah. Just set off this chain of events towards, you know, potential catastrophe. And that was an interesting twist. I agree. It definitely seemed to have kind of a Cold War flair to it, but using Wakanda and Atlantis as stand-ins for the real world superpowers but having the nations beheaded by 
characters with superpowers, I thought is an interesting twist on that. And it's something you see a fair amount of in the Marvel Universe. One of the things that gets gone back to a fair amount, and I think this is the first example of it, is the idea of Namor being the superpowered autocratic head of state of one nation, and Black Panther being the superpowered head of state of another nation, having them bump heads, I think makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of parallels between the characters. And the other character who isn't in this, but you sometimes see folded into that, is Doctor Doom. Just like these, you know, autocratic kings. In the case of Namor and Black Panther, largely benevolent, but you do see that there is still maybe some issues with having one guy have absolute power over a nation. And uh, yeah, it leads to this like very reminiscent of war games situation here. Yeah, you, you mentioned the Cold War feel earlier too, and there is a really pretty direct and also very confusing jab at the Russians in this, where everybody is, you know, really stressed out that I don't know if they know it's Wakanda because I don't think they know it exists yet, but that Atlantis and some nation are pointing nukes at one another. Mm-hmm. And you see in a, a side panel, the Kremlin or folks at the Kremlin are plotting that, okay, as soon as the first missile is launched, we will shoot our missiles at China. And then somebody's like, that is a good plan. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute, wouldn't the communist nations more so be allies in this scenario? Well, I mean, they generally weren't. Russia was often on the brink of war with China. Mao and Stalin were politically aligned, but Mao clashed with Khrushchev and Brezhnev over the de-Stalinification, and the Soviets really didn't approve of the Cultural Revolution. I was more confused by just the language thing. Like, are they speaking English in the capital? And then there's the one guy who pipes up like that? And da, <laughs> it is good plan. Or is that translated from Russian, and he's just a dumb guy who talks weird? <laughs> it's like, why is he in that meeting? Yeah, I don't know. It didn't have the little translation brackets on it. So I think it's just, yeah, they're just discussing affairs of state in English with heavy accents. Yeah, maybe they wanted to just practice their English because they knew there was going to be a war coming up and they wanted to be ready. Mm -hmm. This is their like proto duolingo thing that they're working. That's probably it. At that point, it'd be what, like the Berlitz tapes? Yeah, I think Berlitz was around then. You also see in the panel before that, if we had timestamps in this issue, this was a surprising one to me, where the guy's at the newsstand in New York and is saying, world on brink of nuclear war. <laughs> that Rupert Murdoch will do anything to sell papers. I hadn't realized how early he was a known media presence in the United States. But I looked it up and yeah, he had bought the New York Post in 1976. And so, yeah, people were already uh, dogpiling on him for yellow journalism, although this comic's stance towards him is a little bit confusing, because you do see that, yes, people are generally distrustful of the information, but according to this comic anyway, he's just reporting the truth and people won't believe him. <laughs> Duh! <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's especially when it is juxtaposed with this, like, villainous, mustache-twirling caricature of the Soviet nation. It's like, oh, this is maybe some more of Hannigan's like right-wing bias kind of showing through. Mm. 
I was actually fairly gratified. I found a interview online with Ed Hannigan where he did talk about the fact that he and one of my favorite writers, Bill Mantlo, would often butt heads about politics because uh, Hannigan was even very early on a uh, libertarian in his political views. And I mean, I know we had definitely picked up on that from these issues, but it was nice to have confirmation that I was like, okay, I wasn't making that up. That really is some like Ayn Rand shit that he was putting in that last issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it wasn't, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> yeah, that would be one hell of a coincidence. <laughs> if it's just like, no, nah, I just thought your Titanetian was a good name. And then it turns out backwards, <laughs> it spells something weird. <laughs> what are the odds? For some reason, we were both just giving Ed Hannigan a weird accent. And speaking of weird accents, <laughs> in this issue, we see a depiction of Carter that confused the heck out of me at first. Turns out he's a mainer. <laughs> His pronunciation of the word, is it however? Yep. Made me really think, I was like, oh, in the Marvel Universe, did... Ted Kennedy? <laughs> was Ted Kennedy president at this point? Is that who he's supposed to be? Yep, I actually, that's hilarious. I had the same thought. I was like, wait, that's supposed to be Carter, but it's like one, it's a Kennedy. It's, it's some Kennedy. Yeah, but I think it is just that it's supposed to be mimicking a Carter accent, I guess Georgian accent. But yeah, the line of, However, I will be keeping an eye on the situation was absolutely how I read it and was like, wait, why? Why is why is Kennedy in charge? Yep. And also, that's funny. The setting in which that happens is Kyle's meeting with his lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I'm paying somebody four hundred dollars an hour or whatever Kyle's lawyer charges. <laughs> like, turn the damn TV off, man. I would almost guarantee that was Kyle's insistence. I get bored talking business. Just uh, put it on the sports channel. And mm -hmm. he got he got he was very disappointed that there was an interruption in the coverage to announce that a war was being declared. <laughs> Highly likely. It is also very odd to me that he was like, oh, if only I was there as Nighthawk, I could totally calm Black Panther, who I've never met, and Namor down and negotiate a peace. Whoa, check out the big ego on Kyle. I know it's not a surprise, but that is so uniquely outside of his skill set. Like, de-escalation is definitely not Kyle's thing. And last time he hung out with Namor, Namor barely remembered who he was. Yeah, I was trying to remember any examples of Kyle practicing some form of statesmanship and um, drawing a blank. Yeah, I mean, maybe he just wishes he was there so that he could make a hand-painted wooden sign that says Wakanda go away that he could nail on the outside of Atlantis's dome. Mm. It'd be like, that'll solve everything. That's probably what he's thinking. Almost certainly. The comic opens with a really fun scene where there's this giant banquet in Atlantis to welcome Namor back and be kind of a victory party for him. And you see he's just kind of moping in the middle of it while there's all of this like celebration and revelry going on around him. I thought that was a really fun scene, but also it speaks a lot to Atlantean life that 
he's bummed out because he's like, these people are partying, but they don't even know what happened or why it happened. They're just like, I came back and said, I want to fight. And they're like, hooray, we'll have a big party. Great job. And they really don't know or understand what they're celebrating. They just wanted an excuse to have a big toga party. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a fun touch. And I think is probably emblematic of what life is like in Atlantis. We see it's almost like a Roman orgy of decadence going on. And I think that makes sense when you have like an autocratic emperor leader who is always just going off and doing things that have nothing to do with your realm and then comes back and is like, well, I saved the universe. And they're like, yeah, he does tend to fly into giant rages. So, uh, hooray, uh, great job saving the universe or whatever it is you did this time. Big party? It reminds me kind of of like Caligula rolling into Rome and being like, well, I just beat up the ocean, so I guess that makes me king of the gods. You guys better worship me or I'm going to kill you. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, great job, Caligula. Yeah, and it's finally dawning on him that that feels a little empty. Mm-hmm. I would be happier about the fact that there is a giant fish with a tomato in its mouth <laughs> as part of this feast. Surrounded by roses. Mm-hmm. It's so elegant. And I think uh, in front of it, there's maybe some jello ambrosia salad on the table. <laughs> Probably jellyfish ambrosia salad. Ugh. Yeah. And then you see, like, there is a super drunk guy who is wearing a toga and looks like he's got, like, a laurel of leaves around his head. Again, like, ancient Roman style, mm -hmm. who has just knocked over his wine goblet and looks like he is about to pass out. And the woman to the right of him is, like, really disgusted with him. <laughs> oh, Frank. There's also, I guess, like an Atlantean belly dancing woman mm -hmm. at the party. And I know there's supposed to be, I guess, some sort of uh, castanets that she's got in her hands. But at first, I was thinking they were, like, just two giant French macarons. <laughs> I was like, dang. I can see that. Now that is a party. Look how happy those macarons have made her. <laughs> she has that look of just sheer ecstasy on her face. I'm dancing and I'm going to eat these. <laughs> I'm so happy. They're perfectly baked. <laughs> right. Just a little Food Wars moment. You mentioned how quickly the misunderstanding slash negotiation falling apart war seemed to escalate. And there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, for one thing, you have two very strong-willed, arrogant dictators, essentially, of their respective nations. But for another thing, it really just seems like Namor doesn't know how to play. Oh, man. He's, he thinks he's being polite? <laughs> yeah. He is being horrible. <laughs> I mean, Black Panther doesn't do a much better job. Like, he did sneak into another ruler's country in a smuggler's ship. But then it's like he read, like, a book about how to negotiate with Atlanteans, and it was just a bad book. Mm. Okay, so you want to show them that you're strong, so you want to negotiate from a position of strength. So... In the opening few minutes, you should probably attack them. 
and he does. <laughs> and then it's just like, oh no, that was a bad book. Or Namor just, as I said, doesn't know how to play because it is a remarkable escalation from like, I don't know, like you have that one friend where it's just like, you think you're playfully teasing each other. So you say like, hey, what happened to your shirt? Do you make that out of curtains or something? And their response is, your parents never loved you. <laughs> it's just like, oh, shit. This seems kind of analogous to a conversation I saw like publicly between Shaquille O'Neal and Scottie Pippen, where like mm. Scottie Pippen was just like, oh, my Bulls could have totally beat your Lakers team. And Shaquille O'Neal's response is just like, you were never a superstar. Your legacy is tainted. You were never the best player on any team you were on. History will forget you. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, damn. But I feel like that's kind of a Namor type thing. Namor's being a real Shaquille O'Neal in this situation. <laughs> Where, uh, you know, Black Panther lobs out a, hey, I'm here to negotiate, but uh, just so you know, I'm taking this seriously. And Namor's just like, the insolence! I'm gonna stab you to death! Yeah, yeah, he's totally a, a, a Pippin to Namor's O'Neal. But he doesn't, as I said, handle things great either. I don't know. I disagree a little bit. I I think he did pretty well. It's just Namor was being such a knucklehead about it, and he pretty much realizes right away. Like he makes some statement about like, "Oh, I've really misjudged Atlantean culture" or something. Yeah, but he also refuses to back down in any way. Well, he says he's willing to negotiate and compromise. He does say that, but he follows it up almost immediately by throwing an electrified net at Namor, and then. He completely stops talking, except for to sneak into the Hulk's room and slap him awake, despite knowing that that dude does turn into the Hulk. All right. Yeah, he may have done that on purpose, but in his defense, he was fleeing Namor because basically they have their verbal conflict and then Namor says, I'm going to kick your ass. And he's like, I'm going to run away. And so you think that him slapping the Hulk into basically existence was his way of, like, knocking over some chairs and stools to keep Namor from chasing him? Yeah. Well, it worked. Yep. <laughs> I mean, almost started World War uh, Three, but... Uh, yeah, it would have been three at this point. I, yeah. I think they were still just at the two right then. Okay. Yeah, it comes really, really close, and then they have to kind of work together to avert the situation i did notice maybe it was a coloration issue in my issue but when t'challa makes the call to namor and he's on the big screen were his eyes super red in your issue too oh man <laughs> looks like he's just had a few rips off like a three-footer I was thinking that's a possibility, or maybe it's just that the water in Atlantis is super chlorinated, because he was swimming around in it a lot. Mm. And I mean, it is a controlled water situation, so maybe there's just, uh, being charitable, maybe there's a ton of chlorine in there, and he didn't just take a few bong rips before making a call of international diplomacy where the fate of the world hangs on the balance. Or maybe he just had a good cry. <laughs> that was really stressful. I need to get this out of my system before I call this guy. Could be. So after Namor expresses some concern about the Hulk's condition and 
Steve gives a very like, well, whatever's fated to be will happen uh, out of my hands. I did just enter space around in his brain and solder off some synapses. But uh, if he's supposed to get better, he will. After dropping that, he heads back to the Sanctum, where he bumps into Patsy and Valkyrie and Clea, and they ask him to rejoin the Defenders, which is nice. I had honestly forgotten that he was not still a member of the Defenders, and I feel like the book had forgotten that as well. Was there a... I don't remember that happening. I mean, I know they're like always breaking up, but I don't remember him saying I quit or something. He quit back in issue 46 and never officially rejoined the team since then. That's why they don't hang out at his sanctum anymore, like have meetings there as a rule. He's been like working with them on stuff really continually since then, like with a few issues off in between at times. But no, he really hasn't been a member of the team since then. I mean, I guess not official member, even though there is no official membership. But since quitting the team, he never rejoined it. Hmm. And so it's been like almost 40 issues that he's quit the team. And this is really the first mention since then of that fact. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was really cool that Patsy basically is like, all right, well, the three of us will form the, you know, the core of this group, and then we can invite others to join. Good for her. Okay, by the three of us, do you think she meant her and Valkyrie and Steve, or her and Valkyrie and Clea? I was hoping Clea, because yeah, it could be read either way, and it's probably more likely Steve, but what made me think it was Clea was in the, the next panel after that, it says... And while the bemused Doctor Strange ponders Ms. Walker's startling request, I'm like, okay, it's startling because it's three women. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that could certainly be the case. I really hope that she is talking about Clea, but I think she is talking about Steve, which is a disappointment to me because there had been that B-plot running through a whole bunch of issues of this where it was Clea talking about her ennui and how much she wanted to join the Defenders. and. I would like it if this was picking that thread back up, but I don't know if it necessarily is or if it's just, like, dismissing it. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, I really hope I think she would be a great addition to the team, and I would put her on the team instead of Steve, but uh, it doesn't look like they're headed in that direction, I don't think. Yeah, I think it's wishful thinking on my part, but that's a, a possible read. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So I know we don't normally focus on the ancillary characters, but man, the Atlanteans, like just from a, I don't know if it's like consumer safety or something, but like where I'm coming from, these glass helmets (laughs) keep just shattering left and right. Can you please just make that out of something that's not going to break so easily? (laughs) It's like, they're the real losers in this whole story, man. So many of these guys. Yeah, they should really have some form of, like, underwater OSHA going on down there. But I completely agree. I kept thinking that because those things, they pop like soap bubbles and then they nearly die. And it happens with amazing regularity. Like, just think of, like, how many times in your life you bonked your head hard on something. (laughs) Like, if you were wearing one of those, for sure it would break. Mm -hmm. You're like, now my head hurts and I'm dying. 
Yeah, they're made out of like sugar glass, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I guess on the one hand, you don't want like really sharp, jagged shards of glass flying around your head, but you could, they're, you could make them out of plexiglass or something. Yeah. I mean, they had the technology to build Atlantis. They can make a, a shatterproof <laughs> breathing thing. You'd sure think so. I mean, maybe uh, being charitable, it is the Black Panther, at least, who shatters them once, and he's got Wakandan super technology that can probably break stuff. But yeah, my heart goes out to those guys. And also, in general, to, uh, to Namor's kind of major domo. What's his name again? Lord Vashti. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Vashti. <laughs> a poor guy dealing with Namor being like, I want this bizarre request that just popped into my mind and acted immediately. And he's like, uh, okay, this is going to go sideways. And then it goes sideways. And he's like, uh, Namor? And Namor's like, shut up. Yeah, pretty much. I authorized it. Impossible. <laughs> what he says yep like well i can i can read back the tapes for you if you want but uh that's probably not gonna end great for me and then then he accuses vashti of enjoying his discomfort <laughs> damn dude if so vashti's got balls whose size are as distinctive as his ear shape <laughs> Well, shoot, there's a ton more to talk about, but I do think it's actually all going to come up in the minutiae. You ready to move into the minutiae? Uh, yeah. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. What do you feel like starting with, Cory? Gosh, there is so much of everything. <laughs> Why don't we start with fashion? Okay. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you feel are most worthy of note? Well, I guess we could start near the beginning on roundabouts page five, where we're introduced to the Wakandan commandos. Yeah. Who are all dressed kind of like how I remember the, maybe like the medic character from G.I. Joe. Oh, totally. Lifeline? Was that his name? That sounds right. Yeah, it might be. I, I might also just be thinking of who wants to be a millionaire. But I know the guy you're talking about. It is a very distinctive, like, it looks like a medic outfit, just in that it is all white, and there is some kind of a red sigil on the white beret. But they have a bandolier of bullets, and it's also nice to see a short-sleeved commando suit. Yeah, and they've got some... um almost like mid-calf length, uh, looks like leather boots. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a bunch of pouches. Lots of pockets. Yeah, I think that's a good outfit. They, to me at least, pale in comparison to the other Wakandan outfits that we see from, like, the Mission Control Center and stuff, where, wow, you look on page 26 and just everyone is dressed so distinctively in, like, a 1980s version of like Afrofuturist garb. And it's pretty cool looking. Yeah, I was wondering if like the different dashiki style shirts denoted rank or region or something like that, or if it's just like people can just wear whatever they want to work. 
it kind of seems the later just because there is so much variety in their different outfits. So maybe the people that are doing like the mission control stuff aren't a military organization. Because then you see beneath that is the Wakandan Air Force, which is again, they are wearing like white outfits. They've got like little pilot wings over their chest. And chef hats. <laughs> yeah, super floppy, like rerun style berets that, uh, not bad looking. Yeah, no, the mission control guys are uh, military also because the, the guy that fires the missile says he's the highest ranking general. Oh, maybe they got called back from vacation or something. So they didn't have time to change into their outfits. Yeah, the the woman in that panel has this dress that's like green with other green. Uh, maybe it's supposed to be a vegetal or floral print, but it looks like explosions all over it. Yeah. Like a special camouflage that's designed to be in a explosion of green flames, mm -hmm. which I can see that being like a comic book universe thing that you would need. Yeah, it's a it's a hell of a dress. Yeah, and the dude standing behind her is wearing this like baby blue like dashiki style outfit, but with I don't know like shark teeth around the collar. Yep, it's cool looking. Yeah, it's tough. I was also outside of the Wakandan outfits, very much struck by the civilian outfits of the people buying newspapers on page 23. The dude who is bitching about Rupert Murdoch, at first I assumed he was supposed to be a military official, but I don't think he is. He's just like, I don't know, a guy wearing a 70s style suit with pretty big lapels and a fedora and then dark sunglasses. It looks almost like a military uniform, but I don't think it's supposed to be. Mm -mm. Now, the way that the sunglasses are drawn, they look large and square. It reminded me of like uh, something Elton John might wear. I mean, wasn't he a military man? Didn't he go by the name Captain Fantastic? I assume he earned that rank. <laughs> um, no, I'm not. I'm not hurling any accusations. Okay. I don't, I don't want our podcast to get sued for <laughs> libel by <laughs> Sir Elton. Corey, we're not going to get sued for libel. If J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson in Spider-Man has taught us nothing else, it's that libel is written, slander is spoken. We'll get sued for slander. Anyway, there's a guy standing behind the maybe military, probably not Elton John guy. I love his outfit. He looks like he's wearing like a light caramel colored mohair like overcoat with a matching cap. And I was like, man, I would totally wear that outfit. That looks badass. Yeah, it's pretty snazzy. Nice lapels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the other fashion in this that I think is worthy of note is actually on the same page as that. But we talked about Kyle's office and his lawyer's, I believe, secretary is wearing a pretty dope green and yellow dress that has either a kerchief or a mini cape, maybe. I wonder to what extent there are just like straight up fashion capes in the Marvel Universe. You'd think there'd be more of that, like superhero inspired outfits. Yeah, it's a good look. Very, I don't know, pastel-ish colors. Makes me think of Easter. Mm-hmm. And Kyle, he's only in this one panel, but it looks like he is wearing a yellow turtleneck sweater under a blazer. And I think that's pretty cool. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like you disagree. It's, I don't like turtlenecks. I don't like wearing them. I forget the comedian, but somebody said, like, it's, it makes you feel like you're being strangled by a weak child. 
<laughs> and I, I would generally agree with that, but I do think they look cool. Maybe it's just because I like to watch like old Steve McQueen movies. So like, yeah, as a fashion thing, I think they generally look cool, but I don't personally like to wear them. I think it's kind of like a mustache, right? Like it takes a certain something to pull it off, you know? Yeah. So Steve McQueen can do a turtleneck, Tom Selleck can do a mustache, but it's it's not for everybody. Yeah, good point. And just one other thing of note, too, back to the poor Atlantean guards who get their breathing <laughs> apparatuses smashed. They've got bright orange leotards with bright purple wristbands, boots, and weapon belts. Yeah, it looks like they're cosplaying as, like, Mr. Mixtapitalik. Like, they don't have the little tiny purple derby, but maybe that was on top of their fishbowls before the uh, Black Panther smashed them. Mm -hmm. Just an extremely high-contrast look, and that's, that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. It does make the Atlanteans seem more villainous. I feel like whenever you have bright secondary colors, that's usually a sign of that. Let's move on to the category that I actually had the most difficulty with. Every episode of a Defenders comic has one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they've just got to be a sucker. Who did you have as your sucker? Yeah, this one, for whatever reason, is always pretty tricky. But for me, in this issue, the character that jumped out as the sucker was Namor. because. He is really at his most namery for a lot of the issue. But one of the reasons why he's so bummed out at the beginning when everybody's throwing that party is not only that the Atlanteans don't know what's going on, but he's worried about Hulk. Mm. And I know he has a respect for his companions, his fighting friends, as it were, but I can't recall him expressing a lot of concern about their welfare in the past. And it seemed like for that to weigh so heavily on him was pretty out of character, coupled with the fact that he goes from that to, like, we have to nuclearly annihilate all the surface dwellers. <laughs> yeah. See, I feel like being mercurial in his mood and finding something weird to brood about is very much in character for Namor. But even if it's the well-being of um, somebody he was fighting with? I mean, he may have been stretching things to, to make that be the nature of what he needed to brood about. But I think more it was more a matter of like, well, I'm brooding. What do we got? What do we got? Okay, that. I think that fits into how I tend to think of Namor reacting to things. And just like throughout the Golden Age and then Silver Age, and really just throughout his career he he really does just go so quickly from one mood to another the only through line being how extreme they are so i i can understand why you would choose him it is weird behavior it's just we see weird behavior from namor so consistently that it didn't strike me as out of character i went with patsy for remembering that steve wasn't still a member of the team which i think is out of character for anybody in this book or frankly anybody reading this book but particularly for patsy patsy 
being concerned with continuity, I think, is very out of character for her. That's a good call, too, because she is so, I guess, flippant in a lot of her ways of of talking about what's going on around her. (laughs) Well, you and Valkyrie both guess that she's being flippant, because I believe that is the actual phrase that uh, Valkyrie uses to describe it. Like that's probably a good segue into the uh the steel pie. Yes. So, Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best? Much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel. So, it's that conversation you were just referring to mm-hmm. where Doctor Strange gets back from Tunnel World and Val and Clea and Patsy are hanging out at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, and she says, Hey, Doc, what's poppin'? Did you polish off old what's-his-name? <laughs> and I was like, that is so Patsy. And then Val's like, dude, this is really serious. And she's like, oh, he knows what I mean. I really enjoy that whole exchange. Yeah, Valkyrie responds, Hellcat, your flippant tone hardly reflects the grave nature of Doctor Strange's mission in Tunnel World. And Patsy's like, nuts, Val, Doc knows what I mean. And then, yeah, she follows that up with, oh, yeah, we decided that the three of us had some common interests. And without getting technical, welcome to the first meeting of the new Defenders. Want to join? And uh, yeah, she's making a really fun face when she says that. That that was definitely amongst my favorite dialogue. I also very much enjoyed an exchange that we alluded to before between Lord Vashti and Namor, where Vashti is kind of sassing him. Which, uh, good for him, man. But Namor says, You mean to tell me that not only is the Imperial Navy involved in this provocative action, but that I myself authorized it? Impossible. And, uh, Vashti gets some digs in at him. He's like, Impossible maybe, sire, but true, due to your distaste for the affairs of state. I thought that was fun, but I like what set it up, which is earlier on, when Namor says, Lord Vashti! What disturbs your noble mane? Some niggling detail of bureaucracy, no doubt. But I like that he's just like, what, what's, uh, what's messing up your pretty face there, Vashti? <laughs> why, why look so worried? You'd be a lot prettier if you smiled, Vashti. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a dick move, but I do like that he's just like, you normally look so noble. What's messing up that face of yours? Probably thinking about some minor bureaucratic thing. And he's like, no, it's the fact that you've jeopardized our nation by giving your military leaders a blank check. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole, that whole exchange was pretty great. Do you have any other favorite words? Just an exclamation from Namor when he first sees T'Challa, I think it's page 11, he says, by the beard of Neptune. Pretty good. A lot to choose from in this category, but what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Oh, man. Yeah, there is a lot to choose from. I'll start with a minor one that maybe doesn't even count as a sound effect because it was a word bubble, but it was really funny. And it's one of the Atlanteans getting his head smashed in and he makes the sound <laughs> yep that was pretty good just want to note it briefly and move on but if crump is on the table i'm definitely gonna bring it up and there is some fine crumping in this issue when 
Black Panther punches two Atlanteans so hard that his entire torso seems to explode. Yeah, the crump, and I think that's quickly followed by a, a noise that I've never, I don't think I've seen before, and it's, it's again, uh, Black Panther punching some guys in the head, and it makes the noise, proc! There is proc followed by SMSH, which I guess is shaking my shitty head, is that what it is? <laughs> But it's like, this word smush is so smushed together that there's no room for vowels. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought that was pretty fun. Yep, prox smush. I also liked there is a shrick of a hydraulic door opening to the, I guess, depressurization chamber, probably, that uh, Black Panther is inside. I, it was a minor detail, but I really appreciated that. Yep, that was that was smooth indeed. The sound of Black Panther's commandeered Atlantean vessel entering the water was a classic sploosh, but it was funny because the word is it starts off reading left to right and then bumps into the edge of the panel and just goes vertical down at ninety degrees. Yeah, it's uh, kind of like uh, when you're planning on making a happy birthday banner and you run out of room. It's like, oh, I'll just uh, pop a 180 here and uh, have the word start going the other direction. Yeah, that happens every time, man. Yeah, kerning is a harsh mistress. Corey, I have a question I need to ask you. Okay. Behold or be gone? As I mentioned earlier, the plot to this book, and especially its conclusion, reminds me a lot of War Games, the Matthew Broderick movie. If you had the ability to switch one of your abilities for an ability that a Matthew Broderick character has in one of his movies, would you? And which Matthew Broderick character and ability? And... Which ability of your own are you giving up? That is a complicated question. Yeah, there's a lot of parts to it. Sorry. That's okay. So, meaning, like, my ability, uh, you know, good at fixing things, mm -hmm. cooks a mean pizza. Yeah. Would you be willing to trade one of those things for, say, I don't know, Ferris Bueller's con man sociopathy <laughs> i was just trying to think yeah what was his superpower like i remember really liking that movie as a kid but he was just good at fooling people yeah he was good at being a dick <laughs> and fucking his friends over he had that thing rigged up so it looked like when his mom opened the door like he was like i don't want to get up but it was a dummy mm -hmm. yeah or like in war games he was a good computer hacker uh, in the early days of, like, phone freaking. And he could, like, probably get free pay phone calls that way, or you saw him change his high school grades on the computer. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Or in Lady Hawk, he could turn into a mouse. Or, you know, is there an ability that you have that you would give up and trade for one of a Matthew Broderick character's abilities? And, and if so, which one? Yeah, this is this is actually easier than it sounds. I would just, in a heartbeat, trade my really strong passive-aggressive tendencies. I don't know if you could count that as an ability. Oh, I don't know, man. I'm pretty good. 
I guess. I don't know. I I guess you could trade that. What do you want to trade it for? I'm going to trade that for the computer hacking ability. Hmm. That would be pretty cool to, if nothing else, just understand how that works. And then, I don't know, I could hire myself out as like a security consultant. Mm. That might be fun. Yeah. It does seem kind of like you're trying to con your way into the movie Sneakers, which I can respect. So, okay. I think I, w- I would also take myself up on this deal. And I would give up. Uh, my fingers are double jointed. So I would give that great power up. <laughs> The ability to pick up a pencil using only my top knuckle with any finger on my hand. It's an amazing power, but with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) And uh, I would be willing to sacrifice that if I could have the power of Matthew Broderick's character Mouse in Lady Hawk. Not the ability to turn into a mouse, but the ability to be friends with Rutger Hauer. Oh, and yeah, that, that's the ability that I covet most. And so it sounds like we have a pair of beholds here. How about that? All right. Well, with your new hacking ability and my new Rutger Hauer friendship, look out, world. <laughs> we are an 80s movie. <laughs> totally. Every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and also a worst offender. Who did you have as your best and worst in this issue? Yeah, for best, I went with Patsy because I liked that she basically took charge and she was the one who basically put Steve in the spot of being like, hey, we value your abilities and it'd be cool if you joined the team. But, you know, I'm putting it back together. I I thought that that showed some real leadership. Mm hmm. And uh, that was nice to see. And I also am operating on the hope that she, when said the three of us had a lot of common interest, was including Clea, which is probably not the case. But I liked reading it that way, so I was like, good for her. So Patsy. And also she had good dialogue. I agree. I think she did a great job. For my best defender, I almost went with Patsy, but I actually went with Steve. He starts off, I think, yes, being a little bit arrogant and uh, also kind of letting himself off the hook if it turns out he did fuck up the Hulk's brain or maybe the planet irrevocably. There is a little bit of the, uh, well, I'll just leave this doomsday device under a tarp on the beach. I don't see what could possibly (laughs) go wrong with his approach to that. But I was very impressed with the way that he dealt with having unexpected visitors in his sanctum after returning home from like a, I don't know, fucking two-year journey, however long he was in Tunnel World, and specifically says to himself, I sense that Clea is within, and she has guests. Too bad, I was looking forward to some solitude. But he is courteous, he is a good host, despite all that, which to me is very, very impressive. Yeah, that's true. That is a heck of a thing when you're not excited about it. Not excited about guests and also not expecting guests and still being chill about it. Good job, Steve. You're you're in this one regard a better man than I. (laughs) Uh, Who did you have as your worst? For my worst, I had Namor because, like, yeah, I get it. You're in character and everything. but. I don't know. I thought T'Challa was 
was not at all being unreasonable and started things off by saying he was willing to, you know, compromise and negotiate and everything, to which Namor basically replied, enough of this, I'm going to kick your ass. Yeah, although, and and I also had Namor as my worst, but it was a little bit closer because I also had Black Panther in the conversation with that, and also the Hulk. They all, I think, contributed to a pretty bad situation. I, I agree, you're right, that Namor definitely overreacted, but you do see that it was Black Panther who threw the first physical act of aggression. Namor threatened him and said that he was going to, but it was Black Panther who first threw the electric rope device thing at Namor and then said, and now that I've established that I'm not to be trifled with, we can negotiate. Which I think is something that he must have read in some kind of a negotiation manual, but it definitely backfired. And I mean, I see where he was coming from, but I don't know, man. I think that was a defensive move because he was already running away. And he was being pursued by Namor, who had threatened him with violence, and he put that restraining thing on him. Yeah, it's a little bit difficult to tell with the art and the action. He says, I am the law, obey me or face my wrath, and then Black Panther runs away when he is an invading force in this nation and is there illegally. I don't know. Like I said, I do think that Namor did a bad job, but I do think that Black Panther has a fair amount of culpability there as well. Ultimately, I did give the nod to Namor. For his his lack of statesmanship? Yeah, and for just being so mercurial that I think it is in character for him, but he was really all over the map with his moods and flew into a rage and was less willing to listen and de-escalate the situation than Black Panther was. Although I do think Black Panther did a bad job communicating his willingness to de-escalate the situation. Yeah, and the other thing, too, about Namor that rubbed me the wrong way was his refusal to take any responsibility for giving carte blanche to all the military. Just like, hey, you guys do whatever you want. And then that didn't go well. And he's like, what do you mean it didn't go well? (laughs) Yeah, I agree. That was a terrible move on his part. What I actually have written down is Namor wrote a blank check to warmongers Mm -hmm. and didn't realize that there might be a downside to that abdicating responsibility, and also wanting ultimate power. Not a great look. Nope. What was your favorite panel? Hmm. I think my favorite is probably the one that we talked about a little bit already, which is the opening panel on page one, the Atlantean party, in large part because of that fish with the tomato in its mouth (laughs) and the lady with the macarons. But I did have a question about what was your opinion of the the guy that's in the foreground in purple? He's holding up this, I think it's like a drinking device. What the hell is that thing? I don't know. I feel like it must be a drinking device. It's an elaborate one. It looks kind of like maybe he brought a toy seahorse and he just wants to show Namor. It's like he's got a snail and he's just squeezing it really hard. (laughs) Look at this! Yeah, I hadn't even noticed that. I was preoccupied with the fish with the tomato in its mouth. Yep. That, the Jello ambrosia jellyfish salad, macaroons. Mm -hmm. The super drunk Nero-looking dude who knocked over. I think it probably is a drinking device because it looks like maybe the same type of elaborate goblet that 
the Nero looking guy knocked over is what that dude might be holding, but we can't really see the top of the thing that got knocked over. That is a weird thing. Mm -hmm. It's a very complicated panel with a lot going on and has a lot of the like kind of fun, interesting world building touches that we saw in the last two Tunnel World issues that I think Don Perlin does a really good job establishing. I think that was probably my favorite panel as well, although also in contention is one that you brought up of just after the Atlantean guards get their helmets smashed, the looks on their faces as they are running away and looking for air or water, I guess, in this situation is just kind of darkly comedic. And it cracked me up looking at it. Yeah, they're holding their gills and fleeing the Black Panther. And it's just a kind of funny panel. And the guy on the left is making a sound, which like a rasping for air sound that's written as calf. <laughs> calf. And the guy in the foreground looks like he's adjusting an imaginary tie a la uh, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> it's like, well, this Black Panther don't give me no respect. Yes. It does have big eyes, like mm -hmm. Dangerfield. Any others you wanted to talk about? I did have, as a backup right below that one, um, just T'Challa's hand smacking Bruce Banner in the face. <laughs> it's pretty funny. He's got, like, one eye starting to open. He's like, no, nah, Namor, let me sleep. <laughs> Smack! I, I noticed that panel as well. <laughs> and it actually kind of ties into the next and final category. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules, but in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Mm. Yeah, Hulk, and, and this is unusual for me, I normally go with stuff straight out of his behavior, but he actually, in this uh, issue, was a little retrospective and introspective. He took a page from T'Challa's book and realized that effective leadership, a big thing about it is that the people in charge shouldn't require the people who are subordinate to them to do things that they refuse to do. Mm. T'Challa expresses that as no king should require those to do what he will not, but Hulk was uh, impressed by that. He took that to heart. I think that is a good rule, a good lesson that, that uh, a lot of leaders should learn. I had a couple of possible ones. First would be one that I think that was his takeaway from seeing how the situation devolved with the lack of perhaps cultural understanding going on between the two sides that almost led to a nuclear war. And that lesson would be, it is so important to have a good localization engineer. <laughs> but I decided to not go with that rule because despite the fact that that was your job for a very long time, I still don't really know what a localization engineer is. No, it's exactly that. We prevent nuclear catastrophe by increasing cultural awareness. Oh, great job, Corey. Yeah. Well, I still had the Hulk's rule being something that did remind me of you, which is you need to be really careful how you wake people up. <laughs> Dude, that, I was having a bad dream. And I didn't even know you were there. So I don't know if this story's come up on the show before. I would be surprised if it hasn't. But on the night before our sister's wedding, Corey and I had a fair amount to drink. You might even say an unfair amount to drink. And then I had to wake him up because we needed to start getting ready and go to the wedding venue. And 
I gently shook his shoulder and was like, Corey, Corey, time to get up. And he punched me in the face. Okay, so <laughs> from my perspective, what was going on was, and it was in a dream, but I was there and then somebody was like trying to smother me with a pillow and I was just trying to push the pillow away so I could escape. You were so mad. <laughs> from my perspective, I was hung over and I was trying to wake my brother because he had overslept and he punched me in the face and then said, did I just punch you in the face? And I was like, yes, you did. And you were like, I thought you were a pillow. <laughs> it's funny now. Yeah, no, it is funny now. I agree. And it was funnier a few hours later when I purposefully started swerving all over the road to try to make you throw up. After asking me, after you were like, oh, dude, you don't look so good. Do you need me to pull over? And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. No, I'm going to be all right. And you're like, okay, good. <laughs> started jerking the car around. Yeah. Ugh. Good times. Anyway, the Hulk's rule is be careful how you wake people up. That's a good rule. Agreed. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord, 1980, and the month of our Lord, June, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Wong had been really fascinated with alternate power sources, in particular, some experiments that he had been doing based on some stuff that he learned from Steve and Steve's little um, flame ghost theater machine <laughs> was powered by these mystical batteries of sorts. And it just really got him thinking. He's like, man, you know, finding a way to store energy in something that doesn't require a way to, to generate that energy like in the thing that it, that is consuming it. And it just got him thinking that, man, why don't we do that with cars? Why indeed? So he went through his Rolodex and was like, hmm, I know I've, I've got all these contacts all over the world. I've got people in all these different industries. So I'm going to start bouncing ideas off my buddy, uh, Charles Bluedorn, who had taken over a company and built it up into this really large, successful conglomerate called Gulf and Western Industries. So after doing some brainstorming with them, these conversations had, had begun you know, prior, but it was on June 5th, 1980, that inspired by this planning and conversations with Wong, that Gulf and Western Industries unveiled what it at that time described as a major breakthrough in electric car technology. And it was mm. this car powered by a zinc chloride battery. And their publicist told the press that it would last for about eight hours in charge, could power a car up to 65 miles per hour, had a 150 mile range, before it would need recharging. And it was just this amazing thing. And also with some of Wong's excellent diplomacy and contacts in the government, the Gulf and Western was able to secure a U.S. Department of Energy $15 million loan or investment in the, in the project, based in part on this prediction that they had that by the year 2000, 39% of American automobiles could be electric vehicles. Wow. Yeah. I remember that. 20 years ago. <laughs> Didn't quite work out that way. By September of that year, the Department of Energy basically said this battery sucks. <laughs> it only can bring you about 90 miles and it's about 65% less powerful. And essentially, the plug got pulled on it. 
Wah, wah. It did at least start the idea. Didn't quite reach that almost 40% of electric cars in the U.S. by 2017 or so of around 1.2% of all the sales were electric hmm. vehicles. So we got a little ways to go, but... Yeah, I'm not a mathematician, but that seems like 1% is less than 40%. It is less. That is mm. absolutely correct. So there's been a there's an uptick between 2017 and now, of course, but there's not definitive numbers, at least in the U.S., on what the percentage of EV sales are. But at least thanks to Wong, it got its start back in June of 1980. Well, that was one doing that Wong was doing. Other than that, he was helping console a friend of his. You see, on June 16th, the Supreme Court ruled that new life created in a lab could be patented. And that was pretty upsetting to a friend of Wong's whose life had been created in a lab. The Vision. The uh, synthesoid. And so Wong and the Vision were hanging out. And Wong tried to cheer him up. He's like, you know what you need? You need some comedy. I'm going to take you over to a friend's house. And so he, they went over to Richard Pryor's house. But Richard Pryor was oh, no. not in a particularly jokey mood right then because he had a few days ago blown up a lot of his face free bracing cocaine. And so the Vision left in an even worse mood than he came in in. And so uh, Wong was just racking his brains for, for ways he could try to cheer up the vision. And he's like, you know what? Let's go to an amusement park. So they went to an amusement park and they rode a roller coaster. It was called the Miracle Roller. The vision really enjoyed it. In fact, it was the only thing that was distracting him from knowing that his own life could be patented. And that patent could be held by someone else. In his case, I think Ultron, which is not great. I mean, I guess Ultron's life could be patented by Hank Pym, which means that by the transitive property, the vision could be patented by Inspector Insector himself, Hank Pym, which really put him in a, a great state of depression. So he decided he was just not going to get off that roller coaster. He used his powers to disguise himself as a human so that no one could try to take him back to the lab. And he called this new disguise of his Jim King. And as Jim King, he rode the Miracle Roller roller coaster for 368 straight hours. Oh, my God. Yeah. That sounds like the worst. It does to me, too. But uh, you know what? Neither of us is a synthesoid. We are both, in fact, as has been established beyond any shadow of a doubt, human men from Earth. Very true. But the vision isn't so. He really enjoyed riding that roller coaster for 368 hours. And when it was done, it had put things in a little bit more perspective. And uh, he realized that Hank Pym was never going to get his shit together enough to apply for a patent. <laughs> and that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in June of 1980. Well, Corey... Thank you so much for joining us and talking about this issue of The Defenders, which incidentally was titled Battle Royal, which is a great name for this issue, I gotta say. Indeed. Had fun talking with you about it, and uh, we'll see you next week when we'll talk about some more new Teen Titans. Find out what that old brother Blood's up to. Probably 
licking blood off stuff. One would imagine. Yeah. And thank you for joining us, listeners. If you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. And if you can't find us there, you can uh, try poking around on the internet. We're probably in some of the social media things that you use. Just, uh, you know, type in Tighten Up the Defense, and if you spell it with a T-I-T-A-N and scroll past all the references to a certain Tennessee football team, we'll be there somewhere. And if we're not, there is one other place you can look, and that is deep inside your heart. We'll be there. We've always been there. Probably be, uh, eating some Cadbury eggs, setting off some Fourth of July fireworks, and drinking some nog. Indeed. If you would like to support the show monetarily, gosh, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, and you can do so by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get exclusive accent to... Accent? If you do, you get exclusive ah. accents. Like Corey's French accent. <laughs> Care to give us a taste, Corey? No. Oh, beautiful. Mon ami. But you only get a taste if you want the full accent. You have to donate. No, what I was trying to say was you get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus content. There's a monthly podcast about Howard the Duck that I co-host with my wife. That's called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. There's also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books. And there's just a bunch of other bonus material up there. If you donate, you get exclusive access to all of that content. But more importantly, from my perspective at least, it's a nice way for you to let us know that you like the show that we do and would like us to continue to be able to do it. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary manner, then, uh, you know, just spread the word. Uh, chat us up at bars. No, you probably can't go to those right now. Uh, restaurants. Oh, those are probably takeout only. Um, tell you what, why don't you just uh, go online and say nice things about us somewhere. Uh, leave us a review in a place where a review can be left. You don't know if a review can be left there? Just do your best. Recent review we've gotten on Apple Podcasts is Couple of Bozos. Five stars by Gloom Patrol who says, Been listening since the Teen Titan Wasteland days, and Hub's delightful voice soothes me after a tough day of dealing with a bunch of Beast Boys. Corey and Hub can take me to the Bozone anytime. Thanks, <laughs> Gloom Patrol. That sounds oddly suggestive in a way I'm not sure you intended, but we'll take it and thank you for the lovely sentiment. And, hey, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. I enjoy chatting with you guys about a comic book and a bunch of other weird stuff that pops into my brain. Till next time, ah, uh, Imperius Rex. Corey, I'm SMSH, shaking my shitty head. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. And they know it.
You're like you're like a mix between one of the aliens from Sesame Street and Matthew McConaughey. I was going for the former, but I prefer the latter. Yeah, it's like a you know, bring all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. 